All right, guys, I've got the dark overlord of the patriarchy, the villain himself, Gavin McGinnis. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been, I guess, a few months uh, since we last spoke. I think we spoke in, uh, in the fall. How has your show been going so far, your new show? It's going wonderfully. We do it every day, 1030 to noon, Monday to Thursday. I'm still doing my Rebel videos. I got my column at Tacky Mag. And uh, I don't know. My, the biggest problem with this show is trying to get liberal guests. <laughs> so how, how successful have you been so far? Terrible. Really? Terrible. Have, have, you, have you put out a lot of invitations and few people? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially feminists. That's a nightmare. Feminists, uh, Black Lives Matter types. They don't want to debate or even get involved in an involved discussion because their politics are based solely on emotion. And the last thing emotions needs are scrutiny. I hear you. I recently did a, I don't know if you watched my uh, invited lecture at uh, the University of Ottawa. I had been invited by the Institute for Liberal Studies to speak on uh, political correctness and the thought police. And it's, it's received a lot of views on YouTube. And uh, I tackled all those issues. I mean, safe spaces, microaggressions, uh, trigger warnings, uh, absolute lunacy. T tell us what your thoughts are about it. I mean, I guess I can imagine what they are, but let's start there. What, what do you think of all this lunacy? Well, I'm surprised you were able to do that talk at yeah. Ottawa U. Uh, I tried to get Jared Taylor to do a talk there where he simply questioned multiculturalism and right. diversity. Uh, is it best for society? Now... He, uh, he, he, the reason that, that my brother actually helped set this up is the, that Ottawa U spends hundreds of thousands of dollars promoting diversity on campus. So these students are spending money on a thing without their permission. So we thought, well, let's have someone come in and question if that's worth it. Totally shut down, kicked out. And then I believe Ann Coulter was also prevented from talking there. Uh, the, the president said that if she incites hate speech, she will be criminally prosecuted. And yeah, I don't think that she ever ended up even crossing the border. So the fact that Ottawa is allowing you to come and talk is a big progressive move for them. <laughs> well, it speaks to, I think, one of the last things that you had mentioned on your show when I appeared on it uh, you know, a few months ago. You, you had said that you'd like to try to crack the mystery as to why I can get away with all the things that I can as an academic in such a sort of viper's den. Uh, any new insights as to why I can do it? No, I think my theory, my previous theory still holds true. You look like a cute puppy dog meets Santa. <laughs> now, I'm not you sure. Have a, that... You have a cozy face. Right, but it's very emasculating when you say that because it kind of removes all my sexual charisma from yes. the table. And I'm, I'm not sure. I feel somewhat triggered and unsafe by that. Well, you're that still going to get laid. It's just, it's just like women don't look at you and say, I want that guy to pound me. But they look at you and they go, I want to snuggle with him. And then eventually with snuggling, we all right. know what that leads to. So you still get the same end. It's just the means right. are a little off. <laughs> Thank you, by the way, for keeping it classy and elegant. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, Hey, I wanted to know a bit. I know that you... you You're the one who brought up sex. But, but in a more gentle, professorial way. I didn't go with the words pounding, which are a bit more colorful. But in any case, we can handle it, and I'm sure that the viewers can handle it too. Uh, you were one of the co-founders of Vice in Montreal. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Can in you 1994. Tell, yeah, tell, tell us a bit about that. Actually, that, that coincided with the year that I returned from my... PhD. I studied in the U.S. and I came back to, and joined Concordia in 1994. 
Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So tell us. I graduated from Concordia, I think, in 92. So, so you uh, did not have the honor and pleasure of potentially being my student. No, I remember the thing I remember about Concordia is it seemed to be a low rent university. Uh, my my fellow students appeared to be mostly mature students and uh, single moms. It's changed. Lives together. It's changed a lot. I mean, you're right that. So as you probably know, Concordia is the joining of two former universities, Sir George Williams University and Loyola College. Uh, and so they're on separate campuses. They joined together in the 70s and became Concordia. Now, Sir George Williams University, when it was first founded, I think in the 40s, precisely uh, sought to service, you know, mature students coming back to school, people who might be working and so on. And so there certainly is that uh, history associated to Concordia. But more recently, I mean, if I don't know if you've had a chance to ever come back and visit Montreal recently, the capital campaign that we've gone through, if you look at some of the buildings that have been, you know, that have been erected in the past few years, I, I don't think you would recognize it. It's really moving forward. Well, that's great news, but I would have absolutely no interest in checking in on my former school. That would be number 37 on my priority list if I went to Montreal. What, what's the, where's the, where's the animus coming from? Is it that you didn't like the general culture at the school? What? No, no, there's no animosity here. I just, do, do you want to go check in on your old school? Who cares? You know, I went back. So I got my PhD at Cornell. And the first time that I went back to Ithaca, frankly, I was quite uh, moved because, you know, it was a very special experience. Maybe it's different in the U.S. when you go away to study somewhere. Maybe you feel a stronger, a stronger sense of allegiance to your school, whereas most Canadians end up going to schools that are close to home. So maybe that's part of the dynamic why maybe Canadians don't feel quite the same sense of uh, loyalty to their school. Could that be it? I would wager that most liberal arts students feel nothing for their school because they shouldn't have gone to school. I mean, I, I took English literature. What a total waste of time. Thank God the government paid for most of it and I wasn't saddled with debt. I think my tuition was about 1500 bucks a year, so I just paid for it myself right. working odd jobs at the school. But why didn't I just Google the classics? I mean, we were reading Dickens and Bronte and all these, these romantic era English novels. Total waste of time. So I feel nothing at all when did, I look back at Concordia and Carleton. Did you at all, uh, were you at all exposed to postmodernism and all that sort of anti-science nonsense? Yes. I mean, I was there. I started in 88, sort of dropped out and went back and forth uh, in the early 90s. But um, that's when it was starting. And I remember actually at Concordia, I was arguing about, I was anti-immigration because I was an environmentalist and I knew that nothing damages the environment like population. And nothing contributes to the population more than immigration. And especially in America, where the citizenry is not breeding. They're barely keeping themselves at stasis. But 100% of the uh, wedge, they call it, the immigration increase is Mexicans and illegals and immigrants. So I said, we should be anti-immigration because I'm anti-overpopulation. And then this Concordia lug, lesbian until graduation, said, uh, no, you're just mad at overpopulation because other groups brown people are breeding more than white people. And that hadn't occurred to me because I didn't even know that. Right. I mean, Canadians, my generation was very unracial. Right. 
In fact, I just discovered a buddy on Facebook we used to call Drunk Dunk, and I never knew his last name all the years I'd known him back in the 80s as punk teenagers. And I saw you had like a Yakamoto last name. And I had just assumed he was a, a native. But uh, I was kind of surprised by my own surprise because I realized back when we were kids in the 80s, you didn't know or care what race someone was. But now, you know, my Japanese friend is Mr. Akira Ohiso and J Japan comes up once a conversation at least. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sidetracked there. But yeah, the early 90s was when it started really gaining stride. Yeah. And it took a timeout from 95 to 2005. There was a decade respite there. But uh, now what we see going on, we've already seen in the early 90s. Are we, are we talking about now immigration or postmodernism? What, what are you referring to? Uh, triggering. Oh, that's Sexist. Political correctness. Right, right, right. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I did a sad truth uh, recently where I took clips of, or not clips, but quotes from... Uh, three of the grand charlatans of French postmodernism, so Jacques Derrida, Jacques Lacan, and Michel Foucault. I'm not sure if you know who they are. And it, I mean, it's, it's just genuinely random gibberish. And I just put up those clips and I read, and I read them on my, on my uh, show. I mean, just to see if anybody can, you know, extract any meaning from them. And I genuinely had a hard time getting through the three quotes without cracking up. I had to actually do several takes because it's just extraordinary that these guys became world famous for genuinely uttering utter nonsense. And they convinced people that if someone did not understand their random gibberish, that meant that they were stupid rather than the fact that those guys were saying utter nonsense. It's a fantastic, you know, fraud on a grand scale. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Well, you know what it is? It's nothing new. I mean, we had this with the church 400 years ago. They spoke in Latin. No one understood Latin, or even before that, no one could read. So the, the elite religious groups, the religious leaders, would read and speak Latin, and they were better than you. And if you don't understand that, you're stupid. And you can't read the Bible. We have to read it to you. We're superior to you. And we see that today with political correctness. It's, oh, you still say black? No, 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 it's person of color now. Oh, you still say African-American? They have their own little Klingon language from Star Trek. And if you don't know it, you're stupid. And what they really want is the power to tell you what to do, like you're their little brother. It's a big brother, little brother thing, which is probably why Orwell used the word big brother. It's, right. it's, that's the tone of it. And, uh, yeah, the, you know, were those guys existentialists? Were they existentialists? Now you're asking me to go back into my philosophy jargon. Uh, I mean, you tell me what you think, and I'll see if I agree with it. When I think of Sartre uh, and, and Jean-Paul Jean Jean Sartre, yes. Yeah, and I, I, I think of those French existentialists who said, basically, what I see existentialism as, as saying, you don't have to be you. So say you're a ballerina and everything is going great, and one day you decide you want to be a blue-collar tough guy in sanitation. You can do that, go over there, and then you will you take over that personality, and that's you. So it's not just talk, about talking about changing jobs. You can change your entire identity at 90 degrees whenever you want. You are in 100% control of your destiny. I see. I think and, it's, I'm sorry, I think it's a bit more nihilistic than that because they would say probably, to use your example, that who are we to know what objective truth is, so what your identity is, it's all determined by the language that we use to label a particular job. So they might be even more crazy than whatever it is that you're describing. <laughs> well, I think this notion that everything is random and you can change it and there's nothing 
it's all nurture. There's no nature. I think that myth has really messed with Western culture, and it's it's in the in the auspices of of kicking out tradition and not being a slave to the past. We've actually thrown the baby out with the bathwater, and now nothing is real. And Canadians are especially guilty of this. But science says that we are eighty percent who we are at birth. 80%. Now, if you are molested by your father or you, you were in World War II, obviously there's tragedies where that 20% can be enlarged. But for the most part, look at a million people and 80% of who they are is determined at birth. And you see this all the time with identical twins separated at birth. They'll find these two women adopted, separated at birth. One was in France, one was in Montreal. They have the same income. They have, although one grew up rich, they're both involved in the film industry. Their husbands look similar. Their dogs look similar. They drive similar cars. They both make 65K a year. I mean, that those cases, and there isn't that many because it doesn't happen that often, they are the errant thread that unravels the whole sweater. Right. Well, I mean, this is, I mean, this is right up my alley in terms of my scientific work, as I think we might have discussed briefly on your show. What I basically do is I apply biology and evolutionary psychology to study human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular. And so in the quest of doing that, of course, I myself criticize uh, what's known as the tabla rasa premise of the human mind, right? Or the empty slate premise, right? That we're born with these empty minds and it's only through various facets of socialization that we become who we are, which of course the reality is that as you correctly said, uh, we are an interaction of both. Now, the 80% number, I mean, it, it depends on which characteristic we're talking about, but clearly- The ones that matter, your brain. Yes, <laughs> if your dad has eczema, you're gonna get eczema. So physical traits, boring traits, are more like 50-50, but when you focus on the brain, the decision-making parts of your brain, what matters in your brain, it's 80% nature. Right, and, and one of the things that's very interesting is to study why it is that otherwise intelligent people, so let's talk here about, say, the social scientists who are strong proponents of the empty slate premise, I mean, why would they hold on to such a profoundly incorrect view that is so easy to falsify? And, and my theory is... Uh, and let, let, I'll ask you to, to comment on it. I think it's because it's a very hopeful, I mean, it's a delusional, but it's a very hopeful position to have, right? If you tell people that there are no biological imperatives, this means that I could be the next Lionel Messi. It means that I could be the next, uh, uh, you know, uh, Einstein. Uh, we're all born with equal potentiality, and it's only the sort of vagaries of the environment in which we've, we've grown up that determines the ultimate trajectory we get to. So it's hopeful, right? Uh, if you want to solve crime, get rid of violent games because that's what causes crime. Uh, if you want to get, get rid of, uh, you know, divorce, uh, stop pornography, get rid of mus uh, song lyrics, you get rid of cop killings. And so there are there is this very hopeful sort of facile explanation of human nature that makes people think that if they can control the environment, we could all live in sort of John Lennon imagined land. What do, you, what do you think of this theory? Yeah, I think you're right. And I have a different theory, but it's not mutually exclusive. I think both of these are a factor. And yes, one of the reasons that this philosophy is, has gotten wings is because it makes you feel good. But I think a lot of this is, is Nazi related. And the fear is we all have the Western world has PTSD when it comes to the Nazi party. That's why we keep hearing Hitler analogies again and again and again. We don't hear Mao analogies, even though he killed 10 times as many people, because that's not our culture. 
And we don't hear about Stalin because that wasn't our history. We're all about the Nazis, and we don't want that to happen again. And the fear with nature over nurture is it starts to sound like eugenics. And when we get into eugenics, we get into white people are better than everyone else. And when we get into that, we get into let's kill everyone else. Let's kill the Jews again. Let's kill Mexicans and blacks and and just get a white race again. So it's it's a fear of racism. It's a fear of supremacy. That's why you keep hearing that stupid word again and again. And I don't get why. I mean... It's like being scared of liking the Dallas Cowboys too much because you want to kill all the other football teams. No. When I have a world's greatest grandma mug, I know she's not literally the best grandma in the entire world, but she's my grandma, so I like her. But you can't discuss any natural trait as a positive if it involves whites and males because it might lead to Nazis. And sex differences. You can talk about how the Jewish brain is better. The New Yorker... Sorry, New York Magazine had a front page with Larry David on the cover, and it said, The Jewish Brain. And it was all about how great Jews are. Uh, you can definitely discuss positive traits, but if, it, if the tendency is negative, the subject must be dropped, and you're crazy to bring it up. You know, I, I recently had, I think it was with Christine Huff Summers, uh, she talked about some uh, named phenomenon that refers to I think it was her. I can't remember. Uh, you know, it, it's exactly what you just said, but in reference to sex differences, right? So if, if scientists identify a, a behavior uh, or a task uh, on which women are superior, let's say, uh, uh, you know, a memory uh, location task, right? Uh, and there, there is some evidence that it's, it's quite a robust effect that women outperform men across many different cultures on such tasks. Uh, then, of course, you can report that and nobody is going to accuse you of sexism. On the other hand, if you identify other tasks on which men might uh, you know, perform better on, then, of course, you, you run the, the risk of being accused of you know, being sexist. So it's exactly what you said in the context, not of racial differences, but sex differences. And it goes back to what you're saying about it makes people feel good. It makes people feel bad to call women weak. That sounds terrible. But technically, if you're talking about upper body strength, over the course of millions and millions of cases, men tend to have more upper body strength than women. And that's the way you have to say it, by the way. You have to spend all that. You can't just say men are are stronger than women because you have to delicately placate them. And I think it's funny, by the way, talking about eugenics, when it comes time for women to get inseminated, all of a sudden, nature matters. Right. And they wanted the son of the sperm of a professor who's never been in a fist fight and never farted and can jump small buildings in his tall buildings in a single bound. Well, uh, by the way, you could do the exact same thing in terms of studying women's mate preferences by studying romance novels. And I've, right, talked, yeah. I've, talk, I've talked about this quite often. If you, if you really want to understand, uh, the sort of the psychological, the, the sexual preferences of women. Look at the male archetype across profoundly different cultures where women consume romance novels. It's always the exact same guy. He's a count, a neurosurgeon, and a professor. He's tall. He's got a six pack. He wrestles alligators on his bare chest. Uh, he's a he's a reckless risk taker who could only. He's white. I, well, I don't know about that. He could he could be olive skin. Hey, some of us guys from the Middle East need love too, right? Uh, You're coming in pretty pink on this monitor. <laughs> it's just the lighting. Oh, okay. uh, but, but anyways, uh, so you're exactly right that, uh, look, the reality is that evolutionary psychology allows us to identify those phenomena on which we should not expect a sex difference, those phenomena on which women will 
outscore whatever that means men and vice versa. In other words, we do have a theoretical framework for understanding when evolution would have bestowed uh, you know, a sex difference or not, right? I think, of course, as you probably know, and many of our listeners will know, uh, a lot of feminists conflate the idea of being different with somehow uh, that narrative supporting the status quo. So we have to actually argue that men and women are indistinguishable from each other in order to be able to pursue the strategy of equality, which of course is laughable, right? Of course men and women should be equal under the law, but that doesn't mean that we should have then a narrative that says we can't distinguish them from one another, right? Well, one of the strangest cases of this is fire departments. Right. If you are a fireman and a house is on fire, you need to be able to lift 250 pounds of person who's dead weight, or sometimes literally dead, and take them out of a building. Now, very few people can do this, but much more men are capable than women. And now, to get women up in the FDNY, for example, they are absolving them of the physical requirements just to achieve this fake sense of equality. And it's feminism is a fascinating case of this equality mongering, because... I get, I get it racially. I get when you say when you bring up race and IQ and you say it goes Asian, white, black with plenty of overlap. But I still understand why that's uncomfortable because it sounds like you're saying blacks are dumb. Okay, got it. Touchy subject. Clear. But with feminism, the traits that women have chosen aren't intelligence. It's things that aren't necessarily good, like the ability to lift a 250-pound person. I don't understand why women are coming over to male traits like upper body strength and saying, we're just as good as you at that. You're magic. A person comes out of your body. You're a wizard. You're a superhero. And to come over to us and go, I can uh, do just as many push-ups as you. Well, A, you can't. And B, why are you competing with me in push-ups when you have all these other amazing traits? Why are you trivializing the fact that you're magic and trying to compete with me on my dumb male things, which are creating systems, lifting things, and being a workaholic that neglects his family. <laughs> I'll give you even a stronger uh, sort of uh, position of power that feminists would appreciate uh, from an evolutionary perspective. Much of uh, evolutionary phenomena that are not related to survival, that are related to mating, are driven by female mate choice. Now, there are a few species where you have sex role reversals, but let's take the classic example, but there's a million others, but most of the people will be familiar with this example. The peacock's tail, that tail evolves through sexual selection because of recurrent female choice of particular morphological features of peacocks, right? And so if you want to talk about sort of evolutionary power, females, not just in the human context, but across countless species, are really the ones that are in the driver's seat when it comes to the trajectory of the species. So, I mean, what more powerful of a narrative do you want than that, right? I mean, the size of, me of men's testicles is thought to be an adaptation to female promiscuity, right? So, I mean, so they drive the, e they drive the engine of evolution, right? Now, here's the interesting part. When I mentioned something like that, if, if what I'm saying fits within that sort of radical feminist narrative, then suddenly what I'm saying is brilliant and nuanced and wonderful. If, on the other hand, I say something that is just as clearly evolutionary-based and clearly filled with scientific evidence, but is against their narrative, 
then suddenly I become, you know, Dr. Mengele, the Nazi doctor, right? And so everything is viewed through the lens of their ideology. And of course, that's very creepy, scientifically speaking. It is. It is confusing. And I think there's this misnomer, there's this, sorry, misconception that back before feminism or even in the early 70s, we saw women as inferior. There's dumb bitches who, who make babies for us in the kitchen and make my dinner. Let's keep and, it clean. Let's keep it sorry, clean. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, dumb female dogs that, that make us dinner and breed babies. And that, I just don't get that. Like, when you get dinner from your mom as a kid, you go, it's about time, lady. What is this crap anyways? Make my dishes. I mean, men have always revered that. And when men have successes, like... I have the largest collection of punk singles in Canada. They go, yeah, good. You win a little ribbon. And then back at home, you have a wife who's made three kids. It was generally understood that that is superior or that isn't even on the same level. It does, it's apples and oranges. And the analogy I always use is Superman coming over and wanting to be as you know lauded as a reporter as I because he works at the Daily Planet. And I go, Clark, you've only written a few articles. Uh... You're Superman. How about you just accept the fact that if you spin around the world fast enough, time goes in reverse. Why are you trying to get some gig at the Daily News over me? It's just a strange little thing right. to want to compete with. Yeah, and it, and it it they're bad at it. So they challenge us to a push-up competition. We do 30, they do 8, and then they freak out and talk about how the floor was uneven. And you go, why are we even doing this? Right. And incidentally, a lot of the competition that takes place is really intrasexual, right? I mean, men compete with other men and women compete with other women. So when we're talking about competition within the mating arena, it's not really, you know, inter intersexual. It's not men sort of trying to put down women. It's the fact that men derogate other men and fight against other men for sexual access to females. Females do the same, uh, you know, and so on. So, so the whole dynamics of competition is completely, the narrative is wrong. But uh, I guess the last thing I'll talk about in terms of these sex, sexual sex differences, uh, did you see the lawsuit? I haven't read it carefully yet, but there was, I think, a lawsuit that was filed by the U.S. female uh, women's uh, team. I don't know the exact details. I just saw the headline uh, because they are paid uh, less than the men's team. Uh, is this in soccer? This is in soccer, yes. Yeah. It, soccer is a real sport. Don't start uh, denigrating it now as a Canadian slash American. No, no, I was born in Britain. I, oh, I venerate true. I venerate football. That's right. But yeah, they, they get, I think the minimum wage for men's soccer is 60 grand, and for women it's about seven grand. But this is, once again, women wanting to have their cake and eat it too. And they were affirmative actioned into this sport, and now they don't want to do the dirty work. Like, they complain their pitches are muddy, and they don't have as nice pitches as men. When I was a kid in the 70s, we'd go to football games in a thunderstorm, and it was just mud everywhere. That was life. I mean, men, I think it was named Stuart Pierce. I remember him playing through a broken leg. You had goaltenders playing through broken necks. And these women are now just joining the sport going, this is super hard. Well, I'm sorry, but the free market hasn't deemed you valuable enough yet. Like in Britain, they, they, every major team in Britain has a female team. So there's the Man United that everyone yes. likes, and there's this silly little female version. 80,000 people come to a Man United game. The same stadium has a female game. There's 2,000 people there. If you look at the stands, it looks ridiculous. They don't generate the same kind of money. Now, per capita, they actually generate pretty good money because women spend money. 
But women still aren't watching that show. So out of the fans they have, that demo is a good spender. So the sponsorships tend to be proportionally pretty good for female soccer players. But at the end of the day, they're new to the sport. The, the sport doesn't go fast when you're watching women's soccer. And women are more delicate than men. They tend to have more knee injuries. And I'm sorry, it's just not as interesting to watch, or at least the economy doesn't think so. So we can't pay you more because you don't deserve more yet. Now, here's one sport where one could argue, and I'll, 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 I'll seek your opinion on this, where maybe it has become more exciting to watch women than men, and that's in tennis. Uh, oh. and, I, and so I'm, I'm going to propose this hypothesis. Maybe others have also proposed it. I'm not sure if it's, if it's new to me. Uh, but if you watch men, if they're not playing on the, the soft turf, I think it's, it's, it's uh, clay, right? Uh, it's they're so powerful that there are very few rallies. I mean, you know, you smash the ball, you serve it, the other guy hits once, and we're done because the the power of these guys has become completely untenable for you know to to promote you know rallying. Whereas in the women's game, you have a lot more. I mean, actually, it'd be interesting to know whether what I'm saying is empirically true. Whether on average there are longer rallies in 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 female tennis than in men's tennis, and so one could potentially argue that that's one sport where you might have greater uh, equality in terms of spectator involvement precisely because maybe women are perhaps as exciting if not more so than men what what do you think of this theory yeah and i think another factor is i like looking at women in little tennis dresses <laughs> they're thin they're in great shape outside of monsters like serena williams i like seeing the little white skirt and when they bend over those perfect sinewy legs it's very pleasing and and if if women's soccer wants to increase their readership they should maybe decrease their uniforms you know, I, I, I often uh, discuss Islam and other very difficult issues. I think that I'm less worried about receiving hate mail from these types of <laughs> folks than I am from hosting you on this show. So it, I'm sure you will officially bring down my email account because of some of these conversations. Thanks, Gavin. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for having me on. <laughs> no, no. Oh, yeah, stay here. No, no, no. I'm kidding. Oh, oh. No, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, no. Oh. I thought that was a that sounded like a good wrap up. I guarantee you the women who are mad at that statement don't have nice legs. You'll notice that uh attractive women tend to resent catcalling uh a lot less than the ogres who don't receive it. Well, there is actually research that shows that uh, this was at a conference in uh, a feminist conference where they intercepted uh, f- uh, attendees at the conference and administered to them a, a dominance uh, psychometric scale and also measured their digit ratios because their digit ratios are a marker of how much testosterone they've been exposed to in utero. And so What's a digit ratio? The digits uh, of your finger? Yeah, so the digit ratio, so the, four, the, the 2D, 4D is the ratio of your uh, index to ring finger. In men, the, the ring finger is longer than the index finger. Uh, whereas in women, the two fingers are almost, you know, the same, the same length. And so I never noticed that. Yeah. So the more masculinized you are, the more you've been exposed to testosterone in utero, the more there'll be a discrepancy between those two digits. And so at the conference, it turns out that women who attended the feminist conference had more masculinized digit ratios and scored higher on dominance. So there's something to the theory that, that you're talking about, which is that, you know, it might truly be the case that there are certain types of women that are more drawn to the feminist narrative. Now, of course, there is such a thing as lipstick feminism, where you have very feminine and beautiful women who are also staunch feminists. 
But as a general rule, I think you might be onto something. Yeah, well, I think men have invented modern feminism. You know all these kick-ass broads you see in movies with two guns doing backflips like Lara Croft or Croft, whatever her name is, in Tomb Raider, or the Kill Bill chick with the samurai sword chopping heads? Men wrote those rules, you know. Men created those movies. And the the idea of the badass chick, I think, is mostly just nerds who want to see a woman kick ass because they like watching fights because they're wimps. And they like looking at chicks. So we've combined the two. But to me, a real feminist would venerate the housewife more, the woman who takes advantage of her superpower. And the idea of, of uh, you know, the chicken kick ass too being empowering to women is just stupid. Right. I'd like to talk next about two other uh, very uh, powerful women in today's uh, landscape. The first one is Mark Zuckerberg, a very, very lovely woman. Uh, and I'd like to read <laughs> and I'd like to read you a quote that he put up on his Facebook page. Uh, I won't read you the whole quote, but this is in reference to the recent attack. Well, there, there, there are nearly daily attacks. I'm familiar with the case. Do you, uh, but do you know the quote? So let me just read it for those of you who yeah. may not know it. So uh, this is the third paragraph of the quote. I believe the only sustainable way to fight back against those who seek to divide us is to create a world where understanding and empathy can spread faster than hate and where every single person in every country feels connected and cared for and loved. That's the world we can and must build together. So so basically, love will conquer genocidal hatred. What do you think? He's onto something? Nope, I think he's retarded. (laughs) That's one of the dumbest things I've heard, and it's so ridiculously naive. And why, by the way, are we so focused on the good things about terrorists? Well, where do you see this sort of love for Christians in the Middle East who are being slaughtered or Christian children who are being crucified? We keep talking about we need to take in Muslim refugees. How about Christian refugees? Why doesn't that ever come up? Where's your love there? There's never love for the victims. It's always the Sarnev brother, the handsome one that we put on the cover of Rolling Stone. We never talk about the the dark side of all this. We want to just find the nugget of love. And the reason that it drives me nuts that we're trying to, I'm going to say anthropomorphize radical Islam because I don't see them as humans. But the reason we always do this, it, it, it ignores the fact that they are inbred. Muhammad said you could marry your first cousin. Look at the problems with inbreeding. Just take the Pakistanis in London and the incredible problems they're having with inbreeding, where it's not just once or twice. They've been doing this for 40 generations. And every time I bring this up to people, they go, yeah, what about inbred hillbillies? And I go, yeah, that's bad. Or they go, what about the royal family? They were inbreeding. Yeah, that didn't go great. To be clear, inbreeding is bad. So we have this this trait, this tendency that is crippling them. And I believe... This is why you look at Iran in 1963 and you see women in miniskirts working in a lab, you know, driving cars. And then you cut to today and it looks like you got the numbers wrong. I mean, they're the only culture. Islam's the only culture where it's gone backwards in the past 50 years. And I blame inbreeding, but I also blame the Quran. The Quran is very clear about being violent, about lying. It's very clear about converting or dying. It's very clear about murdering your own if your own retreat from jihad. That's just because you're a white male who doesn't understand the nuance of Arabic. If only you understood Arabic, you'd know that kill, 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 kill means to love (laughs) unconditionally. I speak Arabic. It's my mother tongue. And I can assure you that kill, kill actually means 
deliver flowers. So don't worry about that. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, well, I, had, I hadn't done enough research then. But right. my understanding was you pretty much open the Quran in, on any page and you're going to find something close to smite ye above their necks. So why are we trying to fix this mess? Just get rid of it. You know, I had Talib Starks on my show. He works with under, uh, whatever the word you want to use, some underprivileged youths. And he's in there in South Philly with these bad kids. And he goes, my job really is to separate the, the salvageable cases from the irreparable cases. And he goes, most of these kids should just be cut loose. They're not rescued. You cannot rescue them. And I feel that way about Islam. Why are we trying to incorporate it into Western society? Why are we trying to bring them democracy? Cut them loose. Build a wall. We got plenty of immigrants who are Christian and who are Western, who, who share our values that would love to come here. I think the difficulty, of course, is that, and believe me, it's not as though I want to take the social justice warrior platform. Anybody who knows anything about me knows how much I despise them. But I think the difficulty with, with doing what you're saying is that there are a lot of Muslims who consider themselves to be Muslim, choose to ignore a lot of the very problematic parts, who, who truly want to live secular in a secular liberal democracy. And how do we sort of uh, separate them from those who don't wish to abide Well, by you're us? talking like we're ready to extradite every Muslim from the country. No one's going to do that. The Trump's been accused of that. Nobody wants to go door to door with a bus ripping people out of their homes and throwing them into this Muslim machine. I mean, that again is the Nazi paranoia with the Jews. There's no moment where Muslims are going to have a, a star on their, on their shirts and be thrown to the camps. That's not happening. All we're saying is from now on, let's be a little intolerant of people who are trying to kill us. And as far as the ones here go, if you think suicide bombing is sometimes or often justified, which one in four young American Muslims do, that's bad. We discourage that. We appreciate patriotism in this country and in this hemisphere. And I don't see it from a lot of Islam. So no one's talking about kicking anyone out. Shut up about that. But as far as who's here now, you've got to. You've got to at least adhere to our values. So what do you think are some of the reasons? I mean, I've, I've intimated many of the reasons that I think make people turn into complete members of the ostrich brigade when it comes to discussions uh, relating to Islam. But what are your thoughts as to why people's brains become completely parasitized that they're incapable of having a rational discussion about some of these issues? What, what do you think is driving this? They don't know Islam. Right. You know, they... they it's it's always surprising, and this isn't so true in Amer in Canada, where the seventies imported tons and tons of of South Asians. Uh, but in America, they don't get how much Sikhs and Indians despise Muslims. They were slaughtered to the tune of millions of people. The Sikhs alone were had a million murdered when Pakistan was formed. They hate Muslims because they've been there. They try, I think there's a Sikh expression, you put oil on your arm and dip it into a barrel of sesame seeds. The number of sesame seeds on your arm is the number of times a Muslim lies every day. <laughs> Whoa. So if you think Islam is a religion of tolerance, you don't know Islam. Right. It's not a religion of peace. And talk to anyone who's lived next to them. And I'm not just talking about Dearborn, Michigan, or, you know, uh, Hitchin, England. I'm talking about... The Punjab. I'm talking about India. I'm talking about Pakistan. You know how many mosques have been blown up in Pakistan because some Muslim terrorists didn't like that particular cleric's take on things? Right. No one kills more Muslims than Muslims. They're so, bad news. So 
so to 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 go to the second lady that I want to talk about, uh, the pretty one with the gorgeous hair, our new prime minister, the beautiful, the gorgeous Justin Trudeau. Uh, of course, uh, first we can talk about. I think I was going to appear on your show for my second appearance. It didn't happen to discuss that. So maybe we could talk about what your thoughts are about him uh, ascending to that premier position. And then we could talk about his uh, strategy of trying to bring in many folks from those uh, regions of the world. So first, give us your views on him becoming prime minister. I'm stunned. I think it's the stupidest person in politics since... There's a senator uh, uh, in Georgia, I believe, who was concerned when we sent more troops to Guam. He was concerned that the island would capsize. It would flip over if we added too many people. Justin Trudeau is on that level. Right. He is in the bottom 1% IQ of, of Western politicians in general. He's the dumbest guy I've ever heard of. The fact that he's elected, it left me gobsmacked when I found out. You know, it's... it's uh, and here, let me be very clear. I, I could not agree with you more in that I've actually said almost the exact same thing as you, that it is difficult for me to identify a person. I obviously don't know him personally, but I've heard him speak on countless occasions. And it is difficult for me to identify a person that I've ever come across who is perhaps less worldly and more dumb than this gentleman. I'm, I'm sorry to have to be so direct, but... but if your friend, if your friend was dating the, a woman who was the most beautiful woman you've ever seen, and she spoke like Justin Trudeau and said the same kind of things, you would feel sorry for your friend. Right. You would think he's some sort of deranged pervert who only thinks about sex and has tortured himself with this subhuman. And every day, just yesterday I saw him, and he, he's adored in America too, by the way. Right. And he, he was here and doing an interview, and someone comes up and they go, hey, uh, uh, Justin, could you uh, run America too? And he comes up with the, the zinger right off the cuff. He goes, uh, well, um, basically, it's just, it's just, um, basically, and that's the end of that. Oh, and then they have to jump cut it. At least five minutes later, he comes over to the table, the people who asked him that, and he goes, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I already have a, a pretty good job, so I don't need any more jobs. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's embarrassing. I mean, uh, that's what a child would do. Now, do you think, I mean, I, I actually did a sad truth clip where I, I sort of identified some reasons why I think he won. Uh, I'll mention a few, and then you can, you can maybe add to those. I mean, of course, there was sort of this huge animus towards, you know, the Nazi neocon Stephen Harper, and so a lot of people said that they voted for Trudeau for no other reason other than they hated Harper. Now, if you try to push them on why they hated Harper, they couldn't tell you why, but he was somehow no. sort of a nefarious Nazi. The other reason, of course, is that, you know, Justin Trudeau, you know, does have nice hair. And I'm, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I'm being serious, right? I mean, people no. like to use sort of fast and frugal cognitive strategies to arrive at a decision. And so, you know, he's, he's thin, he's, he's young, he's got a very uh, lovely family, he's got pretty hair. And so he just looks as though he's fresh and he's, he'd be the right leader. And it could, and of course, the third is that he's got a father. And so he's got that name, uh, an iconic name. And so there you have it. That's the mystery for why he was elected. Am, am well, I missing- you're forgetting the, the elephant in the room is women. Right. 80% of voters are either visible minorities, young people, and or women. And those people don't vote with their brains. They vote with their hearts. Justin Trudeau's a cutie. Women elected him because women don't vote based on policies. They vote based on, he seems nice. 
I mean, and it, you got stuck with a loser male model because women are dumb when it comes to politics. Whoa, for the whoa, most part. whoa! Guys, direct your hate mail to Gavin. I am not supporting overall <laughs> politically. Women are more emotional and less informed than male voters. So, what do you think about? Uh, I mean, I think I know where you're going to go with this, but I think he's let in so far twenty five thousand syrian refugees and i think the rumor is that it might increase by ten thousand more or up to twenty five thousand more now my position has always been look uh, uh it's not just a question of trying to calculate how many isis members will be smuggled amongst the twenty five thousand. the right question to ask is what percentage of those twenty five thousand hold values that are perfectly antithetical to our western values that's the key measure what if- percentage are rapists I mean, we don't have to guess what's going to happen. Look at Germany. Look at Brussels. Look at Paris. There's all kinds of litmus tests already triggered over there, and you can see what happens. But, I mean, that, I mean, rapists, I think we could still agree that it's going to be a very small number out of the 25,000. But the number of people... I'm not agreeing to that. You, you, what, you think most of the people coming in are, are rabid rapists? I think a disproportionate number of them will be rapists. Okay, I might disagree with that, but I think where we might agree is the fact that, you know, a large number will hold very reprehensible views against gays, against religious Okay, hold on a second. I said a disproportionate number. So I'm saying out of a sample group of these 25,000, you will find more rapists than you would in a normal sample group with Canadian citizens. Are you denying that? Come on. Oh, if that's the benchmark of comparison, I can probably support that because of simply the views that people hold from those regions towards women, and especially the views that they hold toward non-Muslim women. Uh, But 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 certainly we can agree that I mean, as a totality of twenty-five thousand, that's not really the thing to worry about, right? It's not that there's going to be hordes of rapists coming in. It's the fact that many of them are going to hold values that are difficult to assimilate and integrate within our, our yeah, culture. Yeah, and that, why why haven't we had immigration policies that reflect that since the 70s? I, I, we're actually wrapping up here because someone has to come in and use the studio. But the big question is not just these 25,000 Syrian refugees, but why have we had a, an immigration policy in Canada since about 1970 that isn't based on meritocracy and is just based on multiculturalism and random numbers and relatives. Right. No, I, I hear you. So, all right. So, I guess I guess you called the shot on having to end the show. Uh, do you? I didn't call it. The fate of the studio called it. <laughs> well, I could keep you here forever. But uh, is there anything that you'd like to? Any projects that you're working on to, uh, these days that you'd like to maybe? Uh, promote that I could add to the descriptor of this clip when I put it up. Uh, no, the- things are couldn't be going better. I we have the dumbest prime minister in the history of Canada, and our job is to lampoon politicians. So it's been it's a boon for us. Keep speaking your mind, buddy. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Doc. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Cheers.